The story of King Arthur and Guinevere is part of a body of literature called The Matter of Britain. This collection of medieval literature is legendary and associated with Great Britain, sometimes referred to as Brittany, and the kings associated with it. King Arthur, among all of the great kings, is the most repeated story in medieval literature. King Arthur was believed to have led the defense of Britain against the Saxons in the 5th and early 6th centuries. But because of Arthur's legendary folkloric-style stories, it is disputed as to whether King Arthur actually ever did exist. He was made popular by Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. Though tales of Arthur and those around him widely vary, there are certain elements that are consistent. In many versions, you will see Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, the infamous magician, Merlin, and his lovely wife, Guinevere. There are also tales of Lancelot and the Knights of the Round Table. And of course, we're all familiar with the very tranquil and picturesque kingdom of Camelot. But in this episode, our main focus is Guinevere, and her relationship with the heroic King Arthur. Guinevere has been portrayed in various ways. Sometimes she's almost a villain. Other times she's an opportunist. Sometimes she has a wandering eye, like when she has a love affair with Lancelot. But it's not uncommon to see Guinevere as a virtuous and kind lady. Of course, before she was a great queen, she was a young lady. And that is where our story will begin. I hope you enjoy this tale of love and legend. The quiet whispers of the wood lured me, promising safety in the familiar comfortable enchantment of the creatures within. As I heeded its call, stepping into the soft wet landscape of the forest's underbelly, my bow in tow, something struck me as wrong. It was too quiet, too guarded. Tensions swept around me, whipping hair from my braid, making my dress cling to my body. Everything a warning. A lightning strike shocked the nearby knoll, confirming my suspicion. Gwen! My little sister's voice echoed through the gray, a darkness that had always surrounded my life. I will never escape. Even being so far away... I still caught a quiver in her voice. Something was wrong. Something is always wrong. I stepped away from the wood, my beloved wood, the only place I found peace. It had been explained to me how important it was for me to marry, and fast. It wouldn't be long before I'd be too old to do anything, but I didn't feel old. I felt alive. The wood always revived me, stripping away that haunting numbness. I followed the winding path up the hill, reaching farther and farther into the gray sky. I hadn't a clue what could be wrong or why Morgan was calling my name. After a few minutes of walking, someone caught my eye at the edge of the wood. I was too far to know who he was. The villagers have always told all sorts of tales about the horrors that lurk in the forest, fairies and witches and such. I had a choice. Go to Morgan? or explore my curiosity. I let my feet and my heart decide what they wanted to do, like I always had before. I followed the figure, 
As soon as I returned to the wood, darkness enveloped me. Its cool, comforting arms embraced me. I followed the rustling of the leaves and the sound of the water. This wasn't a part of the wood that I had explored often, but I've walked along these paths long enough to know there wasn't a trace of water for miles. Not knowing who the person was, I decided to keep my distance. I didn't want him to know I was here. My mother had taught me how to creep, how to step with the softness of a lady, and listen with the keenness of a friend who was about to betray. It was a gift she had, one that had kept my father wondering for years how many of his secrets she'd uncovered. My best guess? All of them. As I stepped closer, I finally got a clearer look. It was a boy. Well, not exactly a boy, more like a young man. Possibly around my age, maybe slightly older, with striking blonde hair. Much to my surprise, I realized the forest I'd loved so much still had its secrets. Water did exist here. I approached the edge and stared at my reflection in the mirror-smooth surface. How do I not know about this? Has it always been here? I'd walked these woods countless times and never seen this. A clear blue pond stretched between the man and me. The moon peered down at us from the opening in the forest. Illuminated gemstones speckled the blackening sky. The moon was so big it could swallow us if it opened its mouth. I hid in the trees, not wanting him to know I was here. For a brief moment, I thought about Morgan calling me, and how often she'd called me back to our wretched home for something small and ridiculous. She probably wanted her hair braided or to practice a conversation she wanted to have with Landon, her new beau. I'd grown tired of responding to her every need. She was far too old to be minded by her sister. She could make her own decisions. Mesmerized, I watched as the man unexpectedly began taking off his clothing. He tossed his linen shirt onto a rock. Knowing I shouldn't be watching, I hesitated. I turned away only to find myself looking again. The flinching of his chest muscles made my breath catch. I couldn't stop watching, and when he began to unbutton his trousers, I found myself biting my lip, wondering how long I'd allow myself this guilty pleasure. No lady watches a man unclothe who's not her husband. No lady who knew someone was watching, that is. He doesn't know I'm here. No one knows. I bit my lip hard as he slipped off his pants and slid his body into the lake. He bathed himself, running his hands down his chest, his back, his torso. I studied every move, every curve. He was beautiful, more beautiful than anything I'd ever seen. I'm not sure how much time passed. We were both enjoying our moment in the wood under the disguise of moonlight and darkness and the creepy shadows that stretched before us. Just when I was sure he was finished and my fantasy would inevitably end, movement in the water distracted me. An arm arose from the middle of the lake, holding a sword. The bizarre scene made me bat my eyes, convinced that I must be imagining things. He swam to the arm, gently took the sword from the delicate hand, a woman's hand, and swam toward the shore. He propped the sword on the rock and reached for his clothing. Movement from nearby caught my attention, but I didn't see anything. 
Maybe I was wrong about that, too. The man stood there completely naked and shivered in the cold wind, but he heard it also. His body turned to face the noise, and that's when I saw another, slightly older man, pointing a bow directly at him. Without thought, I slung my bow around my shoulder, aimed an arrow, and released. A feather from the arrow tip clipped my face, causing a minor surge of pain. It took me a moment to realize what I had done. The man fell, grasped at his chest, and sucked in two last breaths before collapsing. From my vantage point, I could see it all so perfectly, so clearly. That's when I realized that the man I'd been watching was now watching me. Not knowing how to proceed, I approached him. Strangely, I felt a strong force pulling us together. He didn't try to cover himself. It was as if he felt no shame and didn't even recognize that he was naked. My cheeks burned with embarrassment like never before when I realized who he was. The king. The cool blue of his eyes reminded me of a spring sky long ago, back when things were not as gray. So long ago that I couldn't be sure if it were a memory or a dream. He shivered. Every twitch of his skin sparkled in the moonlight, making him look otherworldly, angelic, irresistible. I didn't know I was staring until he reached his trembling hand to my cheek. You're bleeding, he said just above a whisper, as he wiped away a drop of blood from my rose-colored face. I opened my mouth to speak, but I didn't know what to say. I had just killed someone. The awful truth lay before me, uglier than I'd imagined. The man traced my glance, and we both stared at the dead man on the wet ground. The creatures of the wood were already devouring him. Thank you. His voice was soft. My mouth tried to say something, anything, but couldn't. Something bound me. I didn't know if it was a remarkable attraction or some secret enchantment the wood placed upon me. He was going to kill you, I said matter-of-factly. He nodded and gently patted my back as a friend would. He acted too nonchalant, too friendly, to a stranger in the wood who was watching while he bathed. Fire burned my cheeks and every part of me. I turned away again, attempting to hide the shame I felt for not behaving like a lady. I turned to give him privacy as he dressed. How amazingly silly of me to have not done so before now. As he pulled his shirt over his head, I decided to be a bit more helpful and handed him the sword. It glowed beneath my hands, a soft, blinding blue. I won't pretend to understand what I've seen here tonight, I told him. He took the sword from me with the same gentleness as when he took it from the mysterious arm in the lake. I won't ask you to. May I walk you home? He asked, sliding the weapon into its sheath. I nodded and the two of us went back the way we came, down the long narrow path of green and up toward the gray sky. I'd always heard that the wood was enchanted, but until today, I'd never experienced anything like that. Unexplainable comfort and escape, yes, but this was something else. Why did he want to kill you? I finally asked, needing to relieve my conscience. Your king is grateful, 
was all he said. He stopped, turned to look at me, took my arm in one hand, and cupped my cheek with the other. He tugged at my earlobe lovingly. Shocks spread through my veins, down my legs, and my arms. I could no longer keep my eyes open. I could barely stand, and my knees felt like they'd buckle under the weight of his perfection. I couldn't make sense of whatever was happening to my body, my heart, my mind. I couldn't breathe. Then he let me go. I fell forward and rested on his chest. For a moment, just a moment, I allowed myself to be moved by his heart. Up and down. I quickly caught myself and instinctively pulled away. There was no denying that something was different. I had not been the same since encountering him. So this is you then, he asked as we approached my family's cottage. Morgan stepped onto the stone steps, her blonde hair whipping in the wind, her arms dangling mysteriously at her side, her face as white as snow. My eyes widened at the look of her. She frightened me. She had needed me, but I didn't come to her. I knew she was in distress, and I did not come. Something kept me there. I looked back at the wood accusingly. Enchantment. Miss, Arthur said to her, reaching out as if to comfort her. She put her hand in his. My heart raced as she buried her face into his chest. He gently stroked her back as she sobbed into him. Father's dead. Her cries muffled the words. Arthur glanced at me, reading my expression, reading my very soul. I felt numb. I knew I should be crying, but no tears came. Instead, I stared at him, trying to make sense of the night. I had saved the king, but I could not save my father. Not that I wanted to. I watched as he consoled her like a father would a daughter, like a father I never knew. She leaned into him, her long lashes brushing against his shirt, lazy eyes occasionally peering up at the gorgeous face before her. She'd never been reluctant with men, but she had never experienced the father I knew. Hello, ma'am, Arthur said while looking at the doorway of the stone house. Hello? Mother's eyes glared at him. A flash of recognition washed across her face, and she began to look pale. She knew exactly who he was, just as I had. She bowed slightly, furiously wiping the tears from her eyes. When she was able to compose herself, she went to Morgan and peeled her arms off of King Arthur. My lord, it is our great pleasure having you here. Is there anything we can do to be of service? Her words came out like a foreign voice from her body, one I'd never heard before. She sounded regal, polished, very unlike her country self. I was just escorting your daughter home, Arthur said while exchanging a glance with me. Mother's eyes flickered my way. I thought I saw a flash of fear, but wasn't sure why. Royals were greatly feared in the past, but our current king had been known for his kindness and generosity. After meeting him, I suspected all the stories were true. You must come inside, it's warmer in there, and a neighbor was kind enough to share their meal with us, considering the circumstance. Although it seemed like only minutes since Morgan had called my name while I was in the forest, an hour at most, somehow during that time our neighbor had brought food. Time, too, seemed strangely off. 
We followed my mother inside the house, and the thick aroma of stew tickled my nose, reminding my stomach how hungry I was, how desperately hungry I was. She scooped a bowl of soup and broke off a large chunk of bread for each of us. She usually didn't feed us so heartily since food was a scarcity we couldn't afford to spare. Thank you, Arthur said as he continued to keep his eyes on me. We ate in peace. Strangers would have supposed that we were a typical family, hiding secrets behind our silence, not wanting to confront each other with the truth of our day. That wouldn't be too far from the truth. Morgan and I helped my mother clear the table. Arthur offered his assistance, but my mother would have no part in the king cleaning dishes. Mother's eyes were wide and glazed as if she were in shock. I knew she needed time to grieve, but I still wanted to know what happened to my father. We didn't talk about unpleasant things in this house. It wasn't our way. We prided ourselves on being resilient to whatever life offered us, but today... Morgan and Mother deserved time to process. I, on the other hand, still felt nothing, with the exception of what I couldn't deny feeling for Arthur. A strange, unprecedented lust. Sin. How did he die? I finally garnered the nerve to ask my mother. It wasn't until afterward that I realized my words sounded coarse, harsh, and without feeling. It wasn't a secret to anyone that I didn't feel emotionally attacked by the day's events. My father had not been a father. He fell off his horse near the Conway's farm. They brought us the news. They took him to the chapel. And the horse? I asked. I know you love that horse, but I don't see how that's important right now, she said, with a hint of anger in her voice. I stepped outside to find Arthur on the porch steps. Morgan sat next to him, gently dabbing her cheeks with a handkerchief, milking every moment of his attention. Please sit, Arthur said, motioning for me to take a seat beside him. Morgan went on about what a wonderful father we had. He was a loyal, noble man who did his best to serve both crown and country, she had said. I could barely hold back my disgust. It wasn't her fault she felt that way, but that didn't stop me from having a strong reaction to the lies. Arthur studied me like he was reading my soul. His gaze sent a prickle down in my stomach and made me feel nauseous, exposed, and vulnerable. All the things I hated most. Would you mind giving us a moment? Arthur gently interrupted Morgan. She nodded and reluctantly made her way back into the house, closing the door almost without a sound. What happened to your father? He fell off his horse. The neighbor found him near the roadway by the farm. The horse is missing. The same empty voice fell from my lips. How incredibly selfish, unloving, and ungrateful I must look to him. You don't seem to be bothered by his passing, Arthur said as more of a question than a statement. Everyone dies, I answered, dusting the invisible dust from my dress. There's so much I didn't want to say. Arthur must have sensed this because he said, He was unkind to you. I brushed the dark hair from my face. Even more than that, huh? We are all unkind, I told him, biting my lip hard enough to hurt. I hated myself for taking up for my father, even if only to cover up what I didn't want to say. 
Heaven forbid I make excuses for the man who caused me to hate this life and everyone in it. What did he do to you? Arthur turned to face me, his knee brushing against mine. A shockwave surged through my body. I had to remind myself, he wasn't mine. The king would never be mine. We all have our secrets, I told him. At this, Arthur reached for me, ran his hand behind my ear, down my neck, caught a strand of hair, and twisted it around his finger. I could hardly breathe, and I hated myself for it. I'm not as naive as all the other girls he's met. I won't be. I wouldn't allow myself to become just another girl who swooned at his feet, gave him some pleasantries, and was tossed away like rubbish. Never. But something in me wanted to tell him everything. I wanted to tell him all about my past, my father, and anything else he wanted to know. A part of me wanted to please him, but I knew nothing could possibly satisfy a legend. Definitely not a peasant girl who had been spent years ago. You don't have to tell me. I see it in your eyes. All the pain. He turned away and looked into the darkness. I couldn't be sure, but there seemed to be something magical about him. Something incredible and also unnatural. How can you possibly know? I realized that my tone sounded accusatory, combative even. But it was true. How could he know? He may be an enchanted fairy person or some legend stepping out of a children's tale, but he couldn't possibly know my past. And I didn't appreciate anyone who suspected they did. I'll never understand why men do what they do. He rubbed his lips together as if he were perplexed, or maybe even sad. I couldn't tell which. Of all the people I'd met in my life, he was one I couldn't read. Me either, I added. We both sat and watched the stars way out in the distance, the unknown hovering over us like a false promise and a secret it would never keep. I must go. But I didn't get your name, he said, breaking my heart into a million pieces. I didn't want him to leave. I longed for the enchantment to continue. Guinevere, I told him. He kissed my hand, sending a raging storm of emotion swirling within me. Arthur walked away from us that night, leaving us to our misery. It was a strange thing to feel more lost at the king leaving, someone I'd barely known than for the father who raised me. And he was gone, just like that, as if he'd never even existed. A couple of wonderful references in Victorian literature that really caught my eye when I studied the history before writing this story. One of them is Lord Tennyson's The Epic Mortiother, which means the death of Arthur. Tennyson explores the death of a more ideal time, a society turning from a time of strong principle and moral standing to its modern counterpart. As society pushes forward, Camelot and its noble leader become a distant memory and ultimately a legend that seems far more fictitious than real. But did Arthur's death mean the death of all that was good? 
Because Arthur is painted as a Christ-like figure, Tennyson related the death of Arthur to Victorian's slow death of Christianity. In the poem, he says, Where three times slipping from the outer edge, I bumped the ice into three several stars, fell in a doze, and half awake I heard the parson taking wider and wider sweeps, now harping on the church commissioners, now hawking at geology and schism, until I woke and found him settled down upon the general decline of faith. Right through the world, at home was little left, and none abroad. There was no anchor, none to hold by. And as if to clarify the relation even more, Tennyson goes on to say, Arthur is to come again, and he cannot die. Tennyson also refers to Arthur's looks, him having blonde curly hair and blue eyes, and the mention of how Arthur received Excalibur. Both are takeaways I used within my story. The other poem that really caught my eye was William Morris's The Defense of Guinevere, in which Guinevere defends herself and her adulterous actions with Lancelot. In the poem, she is portrayed as a bold woman. She defends herself in a way that helps audiences understand why she would have betrayed the wonderful and perfect, at least in everyone else's eyes, Arthur. Morris paints a clear picture of his Guinevere in this. Though still she stood right up and never shrunk, but spoke on bravely, glorious lady fair. Whatever tears her full lips may have drunk, she stood and seemed to think and wrung her hair, spoke out at last with no more trace of shame, with passionate twisting of her body there. It chanced upon a day that Lancelot came to dwell at Arthur's court at Christmas time. This happened when the herald sung his name. Song of King Ben Benwick seemed to chime, along with all the bells that rang that day, or the white roofs with little change of rhyme. Christmas and whitened winter passed away, and over the April sunshine came, made very awful with black hell clouds, yeah. And in the summer, I grew white with flame and bowed my head down. Autumn and the sick sure knowledge things would never be the same. She uses her sex appeal a little here by wringing her hair and twisting her body as she speaks, but also she reveals her actions in a way that appears vulnerable. She had been fighting her feelings for months. Throughout her defense, she tells of her feelings growing stronger and stronger, which leaves the audience wondering, how could she refuse this tempting Lancelot? In this excerpt, she describes her passionate feelings for Lancelot during their first kiss. Wherewith we kissed in meeting that spring day, I scarce dare talk of the remembered bliss, when both our mouths went wandering in one way, and aching sorely, met among the leaves, our hands being left behind, strained far away. If you were to read or listen to the entire story of Love and Legend, which is available on our website, I also touch on Guinevere's worries that Arthur will care more about his duty than he will about her. This frightens her because she knows how much she needs the romance and the attention. She says, Belonging to the time ere I was bought by Arthur's great name and his little love, 
Must I give up forever then, I thought. The defense of Guinevere is fascinating not only because of the time it was written, when changes were being made in women's rights and the understanding of their dynamic roles in society outside of their domestic ones, but it also gave a voice to the fallen woman, recognizing her as a full person rather than simply an adulterous insignificant. Through her words, we start to understand Guinevere's feelings and how her marriage with Arthur may not have been as perfect as the world thought. Although Arthur has been idealized, his great strength becomes his greatest flaw. He may have been an amazing leader and king, but he was leaving his wife lacking something. This is a concept that even modern audiences can relate with. When one or either spouse spends too much time with their careers, often their marital relationships suffer. So, in essence, Arthur and Guinevere's story is a tale of warning to all these generations later. Through all the details of Guinevere and her relationship with Lancelot, one thread of truth remains the same. Their infidelity caused a chain reaction of broken ideals and ultimately a broken Camelot. And sadly, it led to the death of their great king. Tennyson and Morris portray these characters differently, but readers still sense the same true Arthurian legend thread between them. Lord Tennyson's version of events declares Arthur as a saintly man, while Morris focuses on Guinevere as an individual. It's clear that Arthur's purpose far outreached his role as a husband. Wanting to delve a little deeper into the human psychology of Guinevere, I decided to introduce a theory of my own to the legend. In my version, Guinevere has been abused as a child. According to an article in the U.S. National Library of Medicine and National Institute of Health, it is said that childhood sexual abuse has been proposed to influence both women and men's adult sexual risk behaviors and the quality of their intimate relationships. In most versions of the story, Guinevere is childless, with Arthur's distance both emotionally and physically as he would often go on missions throughout the land. Guinevere became lonely. My tale of love and legend stands as its own defense or understanding of why Guinevere would have become a queen who betrayed the most perfect king in history. Another really interesting part of the legend is the Lady of the Lake. She's the one who gives Arthur his sword, Excalibur. She's said to have magical properties and have even enchanted Merlin. It is believed that when Arthur and Merlin first met the Lady of the Lake, she held out the sword, Excalibur, from the water as if she were offering it to Arthur. By taking the sword, he agreed to follow her instruction. The addition of the Lady and Merlin, the magical side of Arthurian legend, further causes the dispute as to if there's any validity to the existence of our beloved characters. My thoughts are that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and when people don't understand how a person could be so noble, how a man could be such a fierce warrior while also having a heart for his people, how a place as peaceful and good as Camelot could have once existed, they tend to attribute these things to the otherworldly. Magic is often the placeholder for truth, when that truth is misunderstood or unknown completely. Speaking of truth, 
After all we've discussed about Arthur and his Guinevere, what do you think? Did chivalry die with Arthur and Camelot? Or are there still knights and dames amongst us? To be honest, I think there are. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles. If you enjoyed this explanation of my story of love and legend, be sure to snag your free copy of it on the website, fablecollective.com. You'll also find links to the poems referenced here. And be sure to say hello on social media at Fable Collective. I want to thank everyone who has contacted me about how much they're enjoying these podcasts. It means so much to hear your thoughts and to just know that you're out there listening and enjoying what I'm doing. Your reviews are so appreciated. I couldn't do this without you. As always, thank you for listening.